Welcome to We Are Neighbors podcast, hosted by myself, Jolie Angel Robinson, President and CEO of Housing Forward, along with my amazing colleague, (laughs) Rebecca Hickam, Director of Coordinated Access for Housing Forward. We Are Neighbors is a space for us to center the experiences and voice of those who have lived experience and talk to experts on the entire topic of homelessness, the who, how, what, and really dig into policies and practices that will help us end homelessness. We want to do that. Absolutely. We'll have a new episode each month. So join us as we explore the issue of homelessness. We look forward to continuing to raise awareness, support advocacy, and move us all to action that we can take together to make the experience of homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring. Every neighbor deserves to have a safe, stable place to call home. We are all neighbors joining in the work to secure that basic human right. So let's get started. Let's talk about coming out to the streets with an amazing author and one of my amazing peers that I get to work alongside here at Housing Forward every day. Uh, My name is Jolie Angel Robinson. I'm the president and CEO of Housing Forward. Housing Forward is the lead agency for the homeless response system that covers Dallas and Cullen counties. And we work together with many of our partners, including nonprofits, our cities, our philanthropic community, to make the experience of homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring. I am super excited to welcome you to the third installment of our 2023 Hard Conversation series. During this series, we talk to guests from literally around the country as we explore the causes and solutions to homelessness. For the second year in a row, this series is presented by the Ashford Hospitality Trust. Additional sponsors of our Hard Conversation are Northway Christian Church, Daniel Roby, Chief Executive Officer of Austin Street Center, and many thanks to all of our sponsors for your support of this work. We cannot continue these important conversations without you. Before I go any further, I just have to bring to the virtual stage my co-host, Rebecca Hickam. She's the Director of Coordinated Access System here at Housing Forward. Rebecca, can you join me, please? There you are. Hello. (laughs) Uh, I always enjoy the opportunity to co-host anything alongside Rebecca Hickam. And uh, as I mentioned before, she's the director of our coordinated access system here at Housing Forward. If you listen to our podcast, which I'm sure you all out there listen to our podcast, the podcast known as the We Are Neighbors podcast, you know that she is my wonderful co-host in that space as well. And she'll be my co-host for today's hard conversation. Incidentally, I know sometimes some people can't get around to that podcast or they haven't gotten around to it yet. That's fine. That's fine. You can find the We Are Neighbors podcast. Check out Spotify, Apple, or wherever you stream your favorite podcast. Please give it up around round of applause. I can't see you or hear you, but I know you're giving a round of applause to my co-host, Rebecca. Thank you, Jolie. I can't believe we're already on our third installment of the Heart Conversations. 2023 is just zooming, zooming (laughs) by. I'm so looking forward to this conversation today. Before we continue, we have to get just a little bit of housekeeping out of the way. 
We are going to be using the Q&A feature to answer your questions at the end of our conversation as time allows. So if you have questions throughout the discussion today, please make sure to use that feature. It is in the menu bar at the bottom of your screen, and we will answer as many questions as we can at the end of our time together. So with that out of the way, let's dive right on into the fun stuff. For this hard conversation, we are featuring Dr. Brandon Andrew Robinson. Brandon will be helping us dig into their amazing book, Coming Out to the Streets, LGBTQ Youth Experiencing Homelessness. Leading up to today's conversation, if, you know, if you're following us on the social media, uh, you'll have seen that we have been sharing tidbits from the book to kind of tease you a little bit and get you excited. Um, our team will also be sure to add a link to purchase this book in the chat box if you haven't already. Um, Brandon, please join us. Hi, everybody. Hi. Again, I just hope that you all are giving it up, snaps or hand claps for Dr. Brandon Robinson. We sincerely appreciate this tremendous work and research that you did, and thank you for joining us today. Just as a brief introduction, everyone, Dr. Brandon Andrew Robinson is Chair and Associate Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of California, Riverside. Brandon received their PhD in Sociology from the University of Texas at Austin in 2017. I hear those Texas roots there. Dr. Robinson is a queer and trans studies scholar. Brandon's research is interdisciplinary and connects with many subfields, including family studies, criminology, health, urban studies, children and youth studies, and scholarship on cyberspace and new media. Their book, Coming Out to the Streets, LGBTQ Youth Experiencing Homelessness, the subject of today's discussion really exemplifies all of the intersections of the work that they have done. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome back virtually to Texas. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you uh, y'all for hosting and thank you for all of the labor at everyone at Housing Forward for putting to our conversation today together. Absolutely. So let's let's get into like the why I always love when talking to authors to understand the why. And you did some robust research as well. So, Dr. Robinson, why was this specific topic such an important one for you to help shed light on? Yeah. So one of my mentors, every time I met with her, Gloria Gonzalez Lopez, she always told me, that when we do research, we need to do research that is urgently needed and that we need to do research that matters. And so that those two things always sit in the back of my mind and guide kind of all of the work that I do. And so when I was coming to this project, I was thinking, you know, I, I do all queer and trans research because that's my personal and political commitments. And I was like, what is urgently needed in kind of the LGBTQ study space? And at this time, you know, I conducted the research in 2015, 2016, you know, at this time, there was a focus on kind of the gay marriage movement. And that's largely what, um, if you were thinking about gay politics, that's what everyone was talking about, gay marriage, gay marriage, gay marriage. And I'm like, there's so much more happening in our community, from immigration to poverty, uh, to bullying, school bullying, to homelessness. And all these things I felt like were being ignored largely by kind of the larger conversation around LGBTQ politics at the time. 
And so I was like, I want to do something on an important topic within my community that's kind of not being talked about and that we need to be talking about because it's such an important issue. And so I would say that was kind of the main thing that led me um, to want to study LGBTQ youth homelessness. Awesome. Uh, if anyone has watched the previous hard conversation, I have my scratch sheet of paper sitting beside me. So if you look, if you see me looking down, it's because I'm jotting down some really awesome things that have been said. And so, Dr. Robinson, I heard you mention research that matters and is urgently needed. And this research truly matters and it's urgently needed. Uh, Dr. Robinson, our viewing audience is always a mixture of those who have read the book, those who have not yet had a chance to, but I know they're about to purchase it because they're clicking on that link that our team uh, shared in the chat. But to level set with everyone, would you please walk us through how you conducted the research leading up to writing of this book? Yeah, yeah. So uh, once I decided I was going to do my work on LGBTQ youth homelessness, I told my same mentor, Gloria, and then I was like, I have no clue how I'm going to do it. Like, how do you find LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness? How do you study LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness? I'm like, there's no way, like how, how does that study even come about? And she's like, this is it, Brandon, this is the project to do, it will just happen. And I'm like, that's not how research works. It doesn't just happen. <laughs> I left her office like, what? But look, it just happened, like literally. So this is, you know, 2015, so I, just started making connections. So, you know, I was at UT Austin, so I was living in Austin. So I started making connections with kind of all the homeless organizations uh, in Austin. And then at the same time in San Antonio, uh, which is of course where half of the research ends up taking place for the book, they were just trying to open an LGBTQ youth specific shelter. And I was like, let me hit this woman up, tell her I will do anything to help her get this shelter off the ground. I will volunteer in any way possible um, to make this happen. And so what I did is I ended up connecting with an organization in Austin, which was a homeless drop-in center that served youth 10 to 24. But of course, if youth were under 18 and they knew that, they would have to report the youth to CPS. So everyone, all the youth that came to the drop-in center at least said they were 18 and up. Uh, whether or not they were, you know, is a different question. Uh, so this is a drop-in center that's open only three days a week in the basement of the church. I don't think it's there anymore, but it was when I was doing the work. Um, Four hours. So it's only open 12 hours a week. And it serves all youth experiencing homelessness, not just LGBTQ youth. But it was, just, I mean, it was like basically the only youth experiencing homeless serving space in Austin at the time. And so we can think like 12 hours is the only time in a whole week that youth basically could get off of the streets because most of them lived off on the streets because they uh, were fearful of the adult shelters in Austin. And so I volunteered there for 18 months, uh, mainly working in the clothing closet, helping you find clothes for, you know, job interviews, core, everyday life, dates, etc. Um, and then that's how I made connections with the LGBTQ youth there, um, who I ended up interviewing during the 18 months that I was volunteering at that place. And then in San Antonio, I volunteered specifically at the LGBTQ shelter that literally opened up almost the same time that I was starting my research. Um, 
And there I did night shifts as a volunteer, um, basically just hanging out with youth at night, you know, watching movies with them, playing games with them. Um, and then I interviewed youth from there as well. So I ended up interviewing 40 LGBTQ youth altogether, 21 from the San Antonio place, 19 from the Austin place. And then at the end of the study, I was starting to I was like, well, maybe I need a more kind of system type of perspective. So I ended up going back and interviewing 10 of the service providers and social workers, five at five in Austin and five in San Antonio to kind of get that perspective as well. So that's kind of the general gist of kind of the data collection of the study. Really, really awesome. I think you also provide some points and some specifics around when our system thinks about youth, we think all the way up to 24 but also youth that are under the age of 18, I think is the, is the age you said, we still have to report, right? We still have to report those youth to CPS, uh, Child Protective Services, which might have its own kind of challenges, especially if, you know, some of the research that you speak to, the tension with family, that tension with family is kind of challenging when then um, an organization or entity ha- is required to report a youth, an unhoused youth to CPS. So thank you. I wanted to just unpack that a little bit for everyone out there as well as you're talking. Um, when we think about addressing um, our and 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 effectively serving our unhoused youth population, just some of those nuances that go along with it. Uh, I think you really did a great job of talking about number one, the significance of the research a little bit here in Texas. You were in Austin. You were living in Austin at the time. Uh, you talk about even even in your in in the way you describe it. There's not a um, an overwhelming number of drop-in centers or shelters specifically geared towards youth, and so that can be challenging as well. Not only for you know as you were doing the research, but for the youth that are experiencing homelessness. And so I really, really want to center and honor the stories of those that you um, interviewed and that you worked alongside and that you served, which is one of the things we try to prioritize as a system as well, is really centering those with lived experience and their stories. But can you tell us what was perhaps the most important part of your process in ensuring you effectively captured the stories that were told to you? Yes, thank you for this great question, a question that I think haunts me every day still, um, because as we know, you know, I'm also, I'm ultimately the author of the book, so I ultimately decide what quotes to use, how to tell the stories, like that ultimately lies with me, and I ethically, I think there's always some type of I would say violence involved in that because I'm objectifying the youth in some way by using their stories um, to tell this. And so then I had to always sit with the ethics of how do I do this the best way possible? And how do I do this in a way that I hope is the most compassionate, caring, and kind? And so for me, I think that happened in several ways. One was, you know, actually spending, I think, 18 months with many of the youth, just building that connection with them, getting to know them every week, where I feel deep care for them because it wasn't just kind of a one-time thing of interviewing them and going on. Like I saw them every week. I got to hear their stories every week. I got to know them in a much deeper level um, than just kind of doing one-off interviews. 
And then I think for me, it was more like, how can I capture the fullness and complexity? So where I don't just write in a pathologizing way about them, but I also don't write in this romanticized way about them, that they're not wholly good, wonderful, great people. And they're also not bad people, right? Like they're complex human beings like all of us. And so I try to capture the complexities of their lives because that is their lives and we need to, and I think if we actually want to address homelessness and if we care about these people, then we need to understand these complexities. Um, And so for me, it was just, how can I best capture that um, when writing the book, both kind of who they are and the way that I care about them, but mostly kind of the complexity of what's really going on in their lives, the good, the bad, the beautiful and the ugly. I jotted down, uh, you know, I guess it's that tension, right? The angle that you talked about, compassionate, caring, and kind aspect, and also capturing the fullness and complexity of their experience, right? Which was really important as well. Before, one last question before my amazing co-host gets in here. You shared some data in your book. Um, If you could share a little bit uh, with us today, the data uh, around youth overall that are experiencing homelessness and the percentage of our unhoused youth specifically that are LGBTQ plus. And then a little bit, can you unpack about why we see that overrepresentation of LGBTQ plus youth uh, who are experiencing homelessness in our in our unhoused youth population? Yeah, so how many youth experiencing homelessness each year is, <laughs> I'm gonna, it's going to be a very academic answer, but it's a question of measurement, right? Like, how are we defining youth when we're trying to capture this number? Is it 13 to 24? Is it 18 to 24? Um, how are we defining experiencing homelessness? Like, are we using kind of a broader HUD definition type of thing? Or are we using, like, they're living on the streets type of definition? Um, and so I think, you know, how that's defined is going to shift those numbers, but I have some numbers that we have, and I think this one uses a much broader definition of homelessness, is that about one in 10 youth experience homelessness each year in the United States, and that comes out of the University of Chicago, and that, I think, number is should haunt us. Like, to me, that's a terrifying number. One in 10 youth are experiencing at least some form of homelessness or housing instability. And then, you know, the numbers are also very based on how we're defining LGBTQ youth and how we're measuring it. Sometimes it's measured asking service providers how many LGBTQ youth they serve, or sometimes it's actually asking youth. But nonetheless, no matter how it's measured, we know that LGBTQ youth disproportionately make up the youth homelessness population, roughly the numbers are about, they make up around 40% of the U.S. youth population, uh, U.S. youth homelessness population, even though they only make up generally about 7 to 8% of the overall youth population. So they disproportionately make up this population. So why are they overrepresented, I think is, you know, a large part of what I tried to capture in the book. Um, and partly, you know, you know, I went into the project and of course, my book starts challenging this, I also felt like it was the family rejection, right? That we were always taught 
LGBTQ youth disproportionately make up the youth homelessness population because they come out as LGBTQ and then their parents kick them out. And normally there's perhaps the religious angle, their religious parents kick them out. Like this is this is the narrative, right? In so much of the media and in the research that was being done. But partly, as I say, that is a problem of most of the research on LGBTQ youth homelessness before my work was quantitative. And so it was all based on surveys. And normally they were just asking these youth to mark the one main cause that you were experiencing homelessness and they would mark, you know, family conflict or family rejection. And so my work, which is of course qualitative and based on, you know, observations and interviews, I think it's at a much more complex picture of helping us to really try to understand why this population is overrepresented um, in the U.S. youth homelessness population. And so I think it's a complex uh, matter of things. And so as I show, and I know we're gonna get into perhaps a bit more around the family rejection narrative, but it's, and you know, family rejection is part of it, but that this rejection and this kind of family tension takes place in this larger kind of context of poverty and instability. So all the youth in my study come from backgrounds of poverty, come from backgrounds of instability. Many of their own parents experienced homelessness at some point or were incarcerated or experienced mental health challenges. And so they come from these already deeply marginalized families that the state have basically abandoned and aren't investing in. On top of that, they also have nowhere else to turn. And so of course, in chapter two of my book, I look at all these other youth serving institutions such as schools, religious communities, CPS, uh, and these institutions also aren't helping the youth. Like, so I'll use schools as one example here. So most of the youth in my study experienced both racial profiling and gender policing in their schools. They were bullied not only by their peers, but often by their um, teachers and administrators at these schools. And, you know, there was times where they would be physically attacked. And then when they fought back, they were the ones that would get suspended or expelled. And so schools as another youth serving institution are actually furthering the harm of LGBTQ youth, especially LGBTQ youth of color and pushing them out. And so I think what happens and partly why they're overrepresented is that there's actually no, I would argue, institutions, especially specifically youth serving institutions here to protect, keep safe, and support LGBTQ youth, especially LGBTQ youth of color. And so one, that there's no institutions to support them, where do they go? But I think a more harrowing thing that should haunt us all is what does it mean that many of these youths think or feel that the streets is safer for them than their homes and their schools and their religious communities? You said so many things that I may note of. Um, the first of which was one in 10 youth experience homelessness, which youth grow up to be adults, which means one in 10 humans have experienced homelessness. That's a lot. Um, and then you mentioned the complexities of uh, understanding what it means, the definition of homeless youth, like 
we all have a different, each program, each person has a different understanding, different eligibility, different definitions of what it means to be a youth experiencing homelessness. So I think that that, that is certainly something that I don't think a lot of people on the call understand, well, maybe don't understand, which is the problem. Um, but the last thing that you said uh, kind of leads into this next question um, around the experience of LGBTQ youth in the institutions that exist or don't exist. So the percentage of unhoused LGBTQ youth who experience victimization is staggering. Um, in your book, you said it's almost 60%. Um, can you tell us a little bit of why that is? Yeah, so I think there's uh, several factors that are going on here, but I think mainly it's kind of an intersection, I would say, of gender policing and racial profiling that often, uh, so the majority of the youth in my study are, you know, Black uh, or Brown youth, mainly Latinx youth. Um, and so Black and brown bodies, Black and brown people are already hyper-marked and hyper-surveilled by institutional actors, by peers, etc. And then when you're gender non-conforming on top of that, which the majority of my study were trans, non-binary, or gender expansive, that then your body becomes even more kind of marked and hyper-surveilled. And so the youth experience this throughout, you know, every institution and on the streets, right? This kind of victimization. So in the home, um, I turned to Gloria Gonzalez Lopez's concept of heteronormative compliance, which, you know, she coins to capture how the family uses abuse to enforce, you know, heterosexuality as the norm in the home. And I have a paper under review right now uh, where I'm trying to build on that to also talk about what I call cis-normative compliance, that the family also kind of uses abuse and policing in the home to also enforce kind of cisgender as the norm to also um, basically try to eliminate trans people from the family. And so these kind of notions that, and then, you know, the school happens to say that through gender policing, through bullying, through physical violence, uh, that we try to keep kind of heterosexuality and cisgender as the norm there. And then that gets further exacerbated on the streets where you're constantly in the public sphere, like you have no kind of privacy there, that your body again is being policed um, for kind of challenging the heterosexual cisnormative way that the public sphere we want to look. And so the youth in our city experience a great deal of violence and victimization on the streets from other peers, um, from, you know, Johns that, you know, those who are engaging in sex work and from the police. And so, you know, the, this kind of marked body that all these kind of institutions, the school, the family, but also the public sphere of trying to wanting to maintain kind of heterosexuality and cisgender as the norms, and then violence and abuse becomes one mechanism to try to enforce that and that I think this disproportionately affects black and brown youth because they're already being hyper surveilled and kind of under kind of racial profiling that happens with black and brown bodies in the public sphere and, and you know institutions like schools. Sorry Julie I'm gonna jump in I just really appreciate the phrase marked bodies because I feel like it properly um, kind of it demonstrates the violence that uh, LGBTQ youth um, are experienced. It just uh, kind of sticks with me. 
I I'm so appreciate all that you're sharing with us. Again, just a reminder for everyone, if you have questions, please include it in the Q&A feature that's on our Zoom uh, webinar today. We are, if you joined after we did the full introductions, my name is Jolie Angel Robinson, President and CEO here at Housing Forward. I'm joined with my amazing co-host, Rebecca Hickam, Director of Coordinated Access Systems here at Housing Forward. And we are unpacking the research and the data and information provided that was done so very well by Dr. Brandon Robinson um, coming out to the streets, uh, robust research uh, regarding our LGBTQ plus youth experiencing homelessness, but also um, helps provide and shed light on uh, our unhoused youth all together. I think it's really, really awesome work that was done, Dr. Robinson. And I really do encourage everyone to go out and purchase it if you haven't already, really just to educate yourselves and illuminate um, some of the stories that you're going to hear and read throughout there, throughout the book. So Dr. Robinson, you do a great job to talk about um, some of the systems that are, are impacting our youth experiencing homelessness, specifically our LGBTQ plus youth experiencing homelessness. And that includes our system, our homeless response system. Um, and it has in unintentional and intentional ways not served our LGBTQ plus youth well or our unhoused youth very well. And so, you know, there's been difficulties in the system to do that work and do it well how could we improve, right? When we're thinking, when we engage, we have a youth action board and we have youth that we engage in the process to help improve our systems and we're hearing from them directly. But what would you say throughout your research, you were hearing, if you were hearing some common threads about how our system could improve in a way that we better serve our unhoused youth and better serve our unhoused LGBTQ plus youth? Yeah, so I guess I'll start with kind of a more macro way that, you know, I still wrestle with as well. But, um, you know, I think a large problem with shelters, with homeless service organizations, et cetera, uh, and these are critiques of the systems, not the people working within them who are doing great work, um, is, you know, I think most of the solutions are still individual types of solutions. And so for instance, you know, both places where I did my research kind of the solutions to youth homelessness was getting, we got to get you a GED, we got to get you a job. And it was this kind of individual way of thinking about solving homelessness. And the problem are that comes from funding, right? And so that, you know, HUD and other funders, they want to see certain measures of what they label success and it's often these kind of individual solutions and so I think one we got to think about how can we get creative money <laughs> to to think of other ways to support people that we're not um, beholden to certain funders that measure what is success because telling someone to get a job or to get a GED one puts the burden back on the already marginalized person to solve their own issue. And we actually know, you know, what is that gonna do? Like ending poverty, getting people into housing. We know these are actual solutions to homelessness. We can see this, you know, in other countries and, you know, in certain kind of other spaces here. So I think we need to think, how can we actually shift our ideas of 
how can we actually work towards more structural things? Like to me, it's like, how can we actually as an organization divest from shelters, which if you're living in a shelter, you're still experiencing homelessness. So they're not solving homelessness and actually divert the money from shelters into actual housing. Because we know that actual housing solves homelessness. We have decades of research on you know housing first. Like this isn't like rocket science at this point, we know this. And so I think we need to think about using our resources for more structural change and not putting the burdens on individuals. But I think again, that requires finding creative funding solutions so that we're not beholden to certain funders that want certain measures of success. So specifically LGBTQ youth, to keep this kind of um, somewhat short, you know, I've been thinking a lot lately about kind of gender affirming care and gender affirming recognition as related to housing and housing stability, especially, I can talk about this during the Q&A more, but my current work is we're following 83 LGBTQ youth for two years um, in South Texas in the Inland Empire of California. And we're trying to understand how grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and adult siblings, how do non-parental relatives provide housing support and safety when youth leave their homes? So we're thinking about non-parental relatives as stop gaps to homelessness. And aunts are, ants are winning this. I mean, ants are amazing taking in LGBTQ yields. But partly, you know, these youth feel safe in their ants' homes because their ants recognize their pronouns, because their ants um, call them by their actual name that they want to be called. And so, um, and that makes them feel stable and safe in the housing that they're living in. And so I've been thinking a lot about like, even you know homeless organizations and homeless shelters, like how does helping youth, how does just using their pronouns and names make them feel stable and safe? But how does like helping them get on hormones, helping them get their ID changed with the right gender marker, like all of these things around gender affirming care and gender affirming recognition, I'm now seeing as kind of a deep part of kind of housing stability and safety. Wow. I definitely like the the point of not putting the solution or the burden of um, the solution back on individuals and thinking more systemically, these systems that have caused the issues. And then just hearing about your current work and um, gender affirming and gender um, recognition as a solution is um, it's really interesting. Um, so in your book, uh, you write that the experience of unhoused LGBTQ youth is more complicated than simply coming out and parental rejection. I know you talked about that in the beginning when you were introducing, introducing your research about kind of making sure that you told these stories in a real way. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more about, um, that complicated, um experience yes yes so obviously there's many things i want people to take from my book but if there's one thing i'm like can we this is it like can we stop talking about family rejection like it, i don't think it's helpful so several points so one going back to the individual solution i think this is another way out right that we can just blame lgbtq youth homelessness on family rejection and then it wipes us of having to deal with larger systemic issues. 
It makes the solution really easy, right? If we can just educate these homophobic and transphobic parents, homelessness for LGBTQ people will just be magically solved. And it, it allows us off the hook of actually dealing with larger systemic issues of kind of poverty. Um, housing is not affordable. You know, I live in LA now. I mean, housing is not affordable. Um, so we, one, we need to like stop using this narrative because we need to think that there's a larger things that are actually shaping us. And I then document that. So again, these youth, all these in my study come from backgrounds of poverty and housing instability. And the majority of my youth in my study are black and brown. So again, I also say, you know, if we're, if, if we're using the family rejection narrative, this is a very slippery slope of saying that poor people and black and brown people are somehow more homophobic and transphobic than middle-class white people, which there's no empirical evidence of that whatsoever. We know it's disproportionately rich white people passing anti-LGBTQ laws right now. And so I also just think the family rejection narrative just has this kind of racist, uh, classist, slippery slope, which is another reason why I find it problematic. And so I show that, again, all the youth come from deep poverty. And then now I, I, I assume middle-class white parents, some middle-class white parents are also rejecting their LGBTQ children, but they just have other ways of covering it up, right? So they can send them to a boarding school. They can send them to a conversion camp, that they have these other types of resources to cover up their own homophobia or transphobia. Or the youth in those middle-class families might have um, more safety nets, right? Like they might have a rich aunt who can take them in or something. So this is about, you know, these youth come from deep marginalization, deep poverty. There's not much social ties because of, I mean, you know, Several of the youth said, I think, you know, Janelle talks about, you know, she moves to like her grandparents, but they're also poor. And at times they live with this aunt. And so this is about kind of when these families, even the extended families have no resources. This is partly what pushes them to the streets. And that this is also about extreme instability and surveillance of marginalized families. So over half of the youth in my study get taken away at some point and put in child protective services. And we know that the state disproportionately surveils black and brown poor families and removes children from their, their homes. And we have ample evidence of this from decades of research. Um, and so it's kind of all of this kind of poverty, instability, state surveillance, racism, on top of the kind of tensions and conflicts around gender and sexuality that are occurring within these larger contexts. And so we need to actually understand these larger complexities if we actually want to address these issues. But the family rejection narrative just glosses over all of these other things and just tries to provide us a really simple solution where the solution is not as simple. Um, I mean, out the gate, the, the statement that was super, super powerful is, when we just say it's all about parental rejection, it absolves us all or the systems um, from coming in and, and fixing what's broken, ensuring that we are providing appropriate safety nets, that we are changing something within ourselves. You know, it's it, our housing forward team and myself were often in panel conversations around homelessness, not just in the youth space, but altogether, even for adults. 
Um, and sometimes the reasons for people falling into homelessness can have us all step back from the solution to homelessness, right? It's like, well, it must be mental health. It, it's those, it's those individual reasons, right? It must be mental health. It must be, um, it must be a drug addiction. It must be sobriety issues. And so that doesn't then force us really to look at a system-wide approach, as you mentioned, a structural change that often has to happen because we are like, it's a one-off, well, it's that individual and they just need to fix X, Y, Z or do X, Y, Z to solve their own, solve their own homelessness. So like, thank you. Thank you for lifting that up and providing that perspective as well in this space, what we're talking about. As evidence in your book, you do write about the experience of LGBTQ plus unhoused youth of color and how their experience is often more difficult than that of their white counterparts. Um, and again, if you all have not read the book, you're going to hear really robust um, uh, qualitative information and data from youth experiencing homelessness. What did your research tell you about the why behind that? Yeah, so I think it's several fold and I probably touched on a, a lot of it earlier. So I think partly it's how kind of racial profiling intersects with experiences of gender and sexuality. And, you know, Nahom is really interesting. And, you know, maybe I've got pushback about this, but I still think it's partly um, about a politics of respectability that like with in black and brown families. And, you know, I, I think the quote by Naomi in chapter one, I think, you know, where she says, she's a trans woman of color, a trans Latinx woman in my study, you know, she says, you know, my, my parents beat me because they were scared I was going to be different. And like, I'm already brown, I'm already poor. My life is already really, really hard. And now they don't want me to also be, you know, queer and trans. And so, you know, that's how she, try to understand the abuse that went on in her home. And so partly, I think, in the home, you know, when families are already dealing with racism, white supremacy, poverty, that maybe there is this fear um, of how, you know, being LGBTQ can make life even harder on top of these kind of intersections and then kind of the violence that ensues from that. And then, of course, you know, in the school and in, you know, uh, CPS, you know, black and brown youth are uh, disproportionately disciplined, punished, um, and pushed out of these systems. And then that also, again, intersects uh, with being LGBTQ, especially I think it intersects with being kind of gender nonconforming or gender expansive, uh, how kind of your body's uh, surveilled. And so, you know, uh, justice, the black trans woman in the study, you know, she talks about, you know, when she goes to school, she wears makeup and how the teachers would always send her to detention because she was wearing makeup. I mean, they would make her go wash it off, send her to detention and how this constantly pushed her out. And so how kind of as kind of this black trans woman's body is kind of being disciplined and punished constantly in an institution that we, you know, should be serving all youth and their well-being. Um, I think it's part of how kind of being a youth of color intersects with kind of these experiences around gender and sexuality. Thank you for sharing. I think you've done an amazing job. My next question was around like the 
um, thinking about this through the lens of gender identity and expression, but also through the lens of poverty and instability, which I think you've done an amazing kind of job covering that experience and kind of um, providing us a, a bit more context and color around that. Um, so I don't know if you have anything else to add, like when we think about our LGBTQ plus youth um, and at the intersection, if you will, to use that term of gender identity and expression, but also poverty and instability. Um, but I think you've done an amazing job throughout just kind of weaving in some of those points. But is there anything maybe that you wanted to add there as well? Yeah, I guess I'll just briefly say, and partly I try to do this in the book, especially in the introduction, I set this up is and going back to the notion of marked bodies, is probably what I try to argue in the book is that we need to move away from notions of identity and actually focus more on the body, because the body, I think, is often how we more experience our social world. And so I think gender expression um, intersects with race, with kind of class and poverty in these ways of how our bodies are marked in certain ways. And so what I mean to say is like, most of the youth in my study, like it, they often weren't experiencing violence because they were walking around saying I'm LGBTQ. They were experiencing violence because they were a black and brown gender, you know, it was like a femme body, a trans woman or a femme gay man. Um, who's black and brown and that is how their body gets marked is through kind of these bodily expressions and that's then often how they experience violence discrimination etc so I, I guess partly i'll just add you know that often we think about lgbtq in this identity sense and identity is important but i think actually you know how our bodies moved and are marked in the world is often how these youth are really experiencing their everyday lives hmm. Dr. Robinson, can you talk a little bit about how the long shadow of the AIDS crisis crisis impact the familial relationships of unhoused youth and their parents? Yes. So um, I think this was another moment where families um, I don't know what to call it, kind of like how to be homophobic and transphobic, but from a sense of that we care or they think that they care in the same way of like, we fear, you know, you're we fear you being gay or trans when you're already black and brown. And so it's like the sense of I supposedly care and this homophobia, transphobia. I think the A's operated the same. So many families would bring up, well, we don't want you to be LGBTQ because like, we don't want you to die from AIDS. And they would say this to the youth constantly. And so obviously it's like, there's this deep information about how HIV AIDS works now compared to the eighties, right? But like most people are not dying uh, from HIV nowadays. It's a, you know, a chronic illness now, not a death sentence. And so there's partly that, but then too, that like AIDS is still deeply linked to kind of, LGBTQ identity and LGBTQ people, even though we know that this straight Black women actually are deeply affected by HIV AIDS nowadays um, in our society, but somehow we still link it to kind of only queer and transness. So there's also that erasure happening. But I think it mainly just becomes another way of parents specifically trying to pretend that they care about their youth's health and well-being while enacting kind of deep 
homophobia and transphobia against, against you know, their child. Um, and so that was kind of the larger tension that was occurring kind of around how AIDS was often still used kind of in these kind of queer phobic or queer antagonistic ways. Even though many of your youth, the youth that you um, talked to and formed relationship with and, and um, provided uh, some narrative around, talked about those parental or familial rejections and kind of some of the severing of those familial connections. Many of them, they continue to work to make those familial relationships um, even if it was tense to make those familiar relationships still exist. Um, I'm sure there was some sort of contorting or, or I don't know, showing up differently than they really wanted to their true authentic self. But what can you tell us about what youth um, that you talked to had to do to make those familial relationships work? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think this was a great and important point I was trying to make is that we often think about acceptance and rejection as a one-time event. Um, and <laughs> it's a lot more complicated than that, but we're often always dealing with kind of um, ambivalent ties and ambivalent relations with our family members. Uh, and so I think, again, the family rejection narrative erases the complexity that rejection is often not a one-time event, that these youth are still often navigating complex relationships with their parents. So this occurred several ways in my study. So one, uh, most of the youth in my study were in some way, shape or form still in contact with their parents. Um, and so several, of the, and, and this is most prominent around the holidays. So especially Thanksgiving and Christmas, they would start really trying to see their parents again. Many of them would go um, have Thanksgiving dinner with their parents. Um, and so this occurred and the youth talked though that they would often have to change their appearance. So the youth would say, I can't dress as gay, right? And so they would have to think about how they were gonna dress. I remember Zoe, a trans woman in the study, thought about going off of hormones before going to go see her parents because she thought maybe that would magically, quickly make her body change back to something that her parents would accept. Um, many of the youth who made ties with their parents still gave their parents money. Um, Zoe, again, you know, she did end up going home for Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, she, when she went, she she took, you know, a few hundred dollars to give to her mom um, at the Thanksgiving dinner. But I think the what was most prominent was all of the youth in my study who had children. And so almost all of the cisgender women in my study who are all, I think all of them, I think I identified, most of them identified as bisexual. All the cisgender women who identified as bisexual in my study all had children. And that allowed them all to kind of maintain ties with their parents. So when they got pregnant or once they had the kids, then all of a sudden their parents wanted to come back into their lives. Their parents often offered to take them back in. Um, and so there was this thing around kind of a child that also kind of reshaped or renavigated these kind of family relationships. You mentioned that some families simply have more resources than others when it comes to supporting their trans and gender expansive children. You talked to, about that when we were talking about um, kind of middle class families. Uh, and that makes a huge difference in the overall experience of that child and family. So what does that 
why does that make a difference? Um, and how does that potentially explain the differences and experiences of some LGBTQ plus unhoused youth? Yeah, yeah. So I was right. I was writing this book right after kind of two major studies came out in my field in sociology about trans kids. Uh, but both of those books were about white trans kids from white middle class families. And, you know, both books are great, but it was about like how these families have a lot of resources and it takes a lot of labor to support a trans kid. Right. So these um, families often had to find a bunch of conferences about trans kids and then they would fly to these conferences to learn how to take, you know, advocate for their trans kids. They had to sh show up, you know, at the school board and fight for their kid. They had to go to the sports teams and fight. Like, it's a lot of time and labor and resources that a lot of families just don't have. Don't get me wrong, there's, there's plenty of poor families and families of color who love and deeply support their LGBTQ children. Like, let's not, like, lose sight of that. But that can look very differently, right? Like, maybe you don't have time because you don't work a traditional nine to five. You don't have time to go to a PFLAG meeting that's at, you know, 7 p.m. at night, right? In a way that maybe a white middle class stay-at-home mom does, right? Um and so I just think that like we need to think about how resources and time can shape the different ways that love and support look like um, and shape, you know, how even how like again, like, I, you know, PFAG, I think is like, an interesting example, parents in front of lesbians and gays, you know, it's supposed to be like this main space where you can go learn how to like love and support your LGBTQ child. But the last time I checked, almost all of their meetings are always at like 6 or 7 p.m. I assume all of their meetings probably might be in English. And so we can think about these ways that these create barriers for certain types of families and certain types of parents who then might not be able to access kind of these resources uh, to support their children. And so then love and support can look differently in different ways. I think that, that we talk about that a lot uh, in some of our work, like this, the resources and, and how it relates to one's family's ability to support and resources can equate to um, information, right? Just the, 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 the knowledge. We talk about that a lot. Um, I think it, we talked about a little bit in our last podcast when we were talking about families too. So I think it's, uh, it's a really good point. Um, we talked a little bit about this earlier when we were talking about systems and the victimization that LGBTQ unhoused youth experience sometimes and oftentimes at the hands of those systems. Um, and in your book, you write that Often the state child custody system is ill-equipped to help LGBTQ youth. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? And and how would you explain the the potential why behind that notion? Yeah, so um, CPS is I would say god awful. Um, they are. And I show through both my book, but I have a, an article about it as well, how they deeply contribute to the further um, instability of LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness and further exacerbate the issue of LGBTQ youth homelessness. So like I said, over half of the youth in my study were in CPS at some point, um, and many, many problems occur. One, of course, CPS 
and of course the study took place in Texas, um, uh, all gender segregated uh, shelters, all gender segregated group homes. And so this already creates a deep conflict for um, trans and gender expansive youth as they're not housed where they should be housed. So, you know, a trans girl is housed in a boy group home and we can only begin to imagine the violence that can occur from that type of housing. And CPS in Texas told me, you know, I had many conversations with them. Well, we don't have any policies to protect LGBTQ youth. It is what it is. Um, you know, the trans girls talked about how they were forced to shave their heads in these homes, et cetera. Furthermore, uh, many of you have talked about how they were often sent to residential treatment centers as a way to punish them. They were often put on many um, psychoactive drugs as a way to try to control and punish them. Uh, one of the most, I think, harrowing things, I mean, I thought all, all the stories about CPS were harrowing and haunting, but one of the most was you've talked about how when a foster home found out that they were LGBTQ, and wanted to kick them out, that CPS has a policy that you have to give a 30-day notice um, to kick a youth out. But a way around this notice was to automatically send the youth directly to a psychiatric facility. And so several youth talked about once a foster home parent found out that they were LGBTQ, the foster parent would automatically send them right to a psychiatric facility to get rid of them. And they talk about that, of course, you know, we're youth, no one believes youth, they always believe adults over youth, and so we had no power in this. And so there was a host of ways from foster homes to group homes to CPS shelters to residential treatment centers that the youth in this study experienced extreme violence from CPS. Um, and that further exacerbated their instability, and many of them talked often about constantly running away from CPS. To briefly get at the why, I mean, I just think it's a history that CPS is there to surveil and marginalize, marginalize youth. Like this is the whole history of CPS. It was to put what we, you know, juvenile delinquents, which was often uh, black, brown, and or working class or poor youth and take them away and try to assimilate them back into the norms of society. And now I think LGBTQ youth is just an extension of this. It's a way to punish and surveil them and to try to make them, you know, straight and cisgender. Really, really powerful conversation today. Um, everyone, I am monitoring the Q&A. Some of the questions, um, Dr. Robinson is doing a tremendous job of incorporating um, some into the questions that we already have. Uh, we have a few more questions, then we're going to talk about, you know, a conclusion or, you know, uh, one of the questions someone has is about, like, what can we all do? So when we get towards the end, I really want to be able to also equip people with what can they do individually or as a system or structural level. But we often hear, it goes back to some of those individual, individualized solutions to ending your own homelessness. And so we often hear that one of the best solutions to preventing and ending someone's experience of homelessness is a source of income through employment. But often workplaces can exacerbate the difficulties LGBTQ plus youth face in escaping homelessness. Can you illuminate or provide a why or even a personal story that you heard while you were doing the research about those type of experiences? Yeah, yeah. So I guess twofold. Um, obviously, I, I've already made my critique that I don't think employment is the way to solve homelessness. 
many, many of the youth in my study, and we know from many studies, many people experiencing homelessness work. And the youth in my city, they worked at McDonald's, they worked at Sonic, they were a hostess, many of them worked at a call center, like, so, and they were still experiencing homelessness. So the problem is actually that, of course, we need living wages, affordable housing, um, good jobs, right? So working doesn't solve it when most jobs are still not good jobs um, that pay living wages. But then, of course, yes. So, I mean, many of the youth in my study talked about experiencing um, extreme kind of discrimination, especially the trans women of color, right? And so even trying to get a job, um, their pronouns on their ID might not match, you know, who they are and how they present in the world. And so that already creates a very uncomfortable and at times discriminatory encounter with who's interviewing you. Uh, many of the trans women talked about if they did have jobs, um, normally the their boss wouldn't want them in the public sphere. So like if they worked in fast food, they might, their boss wouldn't want them at the cash register because they wouldn't want to have, you know, a trans woman, you know, interacting with um, the public, I guess. And so they would often have to do kind of jobs in the back. And so they talked about kind of how that affected them. Uh, and then of course, like, schools and CPS and families, etc. they just talked about often experiencing a lot of kind of discrimination and bullying from often fellow employees at their jobs. And so there's kind of a host of barriers um, that occur. And let's not forget, many of them also had criminal records. And we know that a criminal record also further makes it hard um, to get a job, especially a good job. Um, and so that as well became a further barrier and kind of you know, employment cannot be the solution to any homelessness, especially if there's all these barriers in the way to, you know, a living wage and a good job. You you just mentioned this, um, and then we had a question that relates to this as well in, in the in the Q&A, but some of your research specifically highlights the experience of transgender adults and youth, specifically trans one, transgender women of color. Um, how do the often negative stereotypes and biases about transgender women of color affect unhoused youth who identify as such? Yeah, so um, I think the main way is that we often hypersexualize trans women of color. And so this affects them, I think, in all ways, right? And so police often see them as sex workers often profile them as sex workers, often harass them as sex workers, may even commit sexual violence against them because they devalue trans women of color and sex workers um, and would often arrest them even if they weren't engaging in sex work or wouldn't believe them, right? So I give the story of Justice who talks about how one of the Johns that she's with rapes her and the police just don't believe her or don't care. But this also, of course, affects housing and um, shelters and gender segregated, right? That we think trans women of color are somehow hypersexual predators are now, unfortunately, the discourse of groomer has kind of come back to kind of paint LGBTQ people, but specifically trans people as pedophiles. And so these kind of deeply negative stereotypes that are not based on any empirical reality whatsoever um, then could prevent like, well, we don't want trans women in women's shelters because uh, they're hypersexualized pedophiles and we don't want to be around them. And so it also becomes a way to deny them access to spaces that they should be in. 
And so, you know, these stereotypes kind of affect them through kind of how they experience the streets and also how they experience kind of access to service. I sincerely appreciate you just being very explicit and helpful and unpacking all of these different strains um, and the complexity of it all. Right. Um, that that's what it, that's what continues not only reading your book and the research, but just having this conversation that it's a complex situation. It's a complex issue. It's a challenging um, existence also, right? That has its own complexities. Uh, and often, not only in our unhoused population, but in the larger LGBTQ plus community, people call um, that communal sense of family, the families of choice. Can you help describe, um, as you were talking to the youth that you that you um, illustrated and provided narrative around, how they might have created those families of youth out of a sense of safety, belonging, so on and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about maybe others don't even know what families of choice mean, excuse me, and then some, if you could help us just unpack what does it mean for many of our youth that are unhoused about creating those families of choice? Yeah, so families of choice is kind of a term that comes out of um, decades from now has been used of kind of thinking about LGBTQ people who form their own families of other LGBTQ people because they may not often have ties or good ties or ambivalent ties with their families of origin. And so they form new families with LGBTQ people that they meet. You know, I, I say this all the time and I think about it all the time is, you know, LGBTQ people, their marginalization operates somewhat differently than other marginalized groups. So Black people grow up around other Black people, women grow up around other women, Muslims grow up around other Muslims. So like all these other marginalized communities often grow up around other marginalized people like them. And so that they can already build kind of senses of community and resilience or whatever um, that helps them survive and hopefully thrive. But LGBTQ people often do not grow up around other LGBTQ people. And so I think that makes kind of their experience of kind of discrimination and oppression somewhat differently, especially if you often aren't meeting other LGBTQ people until later in life and able to form these kind of connections of love, friendship, care, and family, right? So I think then families of choice become all that more significantly meaningful because it's finally, you're finding other people not only like you, but that finally love and accept you for who you are that you maybe didn't have for decades of your life or you know at least 15, 16 years of your life. Um, and so what does that then mean that you finally meet other people? Uh, I will say, you know, the, the most harrowing thing, um, and this might, you know, I know we're about to move to the conclusions and this might jump us there, but uh, the most harrowing thing that has haunted me from this work and that sits with me from this work, and when I think about solutions to this work in the world that we live in, is that almost all of the trans women of color in my study told me that the first time they ever met a trans, another trans woman of color was either in a homeless shelter or in jail. That I think should haunt us and terrify us, that other trans women of color are only meeting other trans women of color in two of the most vile, awful, dehumanizing spaces 
that exists in our society. So what does that mean that we don't have other spaces and places and communities and systems of support where trans women can meet other trans women, both peers and perhaps adult mentor trans women? And how can we start building those spaces, places and communities for you know LGBTQ people broadly, LGBTQ youth probably, but you know, in this specific example, trans youth of color specifically, right? Like, how can we imagine? Because obviously, schools aren't doing it, CPS ain't doing it. So, um, the religious communities aren't doing it. So, how can we begin creating spaces and places, maybe perhaps even institutions, communities where we can support and foster LGBTQ youth and allow them to meet other LGBTQ people so they're not spending decades of their lives not knowing other LGBTQ people and where we can love and support them. But they're only meeting each other in jails and homeless shelters, like that is terrifying. That's, an, that's a great, uh, a great uh, thing for the folks, our audience today to, to kind of sit with as we move forward. Um, you did an incredible job of, you know, explaining to us why the dominant solutions to kind of solve homelessness put the burden on the individual to solve their own problems. You you painted that picture for us um, and, and that it's such a pain point, particularly for LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness. Um, I'd love to hear what do we need to do instead? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that is the question. And I, you know, in the conclusion of my book, I try to offer many kind of both micro and macro ways of thinking of tackling about these things. Um, but I think one thing, you know, that we need to think about, and <laughs> I say that people are like, what's the solution to addressing LGBTQ homelessness? And they think I'm going to give like a specific gender and sexuality answer, but I'm always just like in poverty. Like, and the child tax credit is, I think, the best example of this. Like, we had the child tax credit, child poverty drops in a way we've never seen down to like 5%. And now that the data just came out this week, that we, once we ended the child tax credit, we're now back up to like 12, 13% child poverty. Like, so we know we can end poverty. Like, we just, we, we saw a policy that passed that ended, you know, that significantly reduced child poverty in a way we had never seen in our lifetimes. And then we saw that it end and what happened again? And so partly it's just like how we can literally end poverty. Like this isn't like a hyperbole thing to say, like our politicians can end poverty. And so partly how do we then strategize in our communities, in our organizations to pressure people to funnel money into ending poverty? And, and so ending poverty, I think is a main solution. Of course, you know, again, you know, I mentioned this earlier, we need to think about ways of investing in housing. And so at the end of my book, I call for the abolition of shelters because half of my research was at an LGBTQ shelter. It's probably one of the best shelters in the country. And I still document so many ways that I believe that was creating harm and exacerbating homelessness. And so I was like, even if one of the best shelters can't do it, then shelters are fundamentally wrong. Ultimately, I would argue they're just like jails. They're another way to warehouse marginalized populations. And they don't solve homelessness. Like if you're living in a shelter, by definition, you're still experiencing homelessness. 
So why are we funding shelters when we could take that money and fund housing? Why are we funding the criminalization of homelessness and cycling homeless people into jails when we could be funding housing? We know that we have so many studies around housing fires that we know funding housing is on average three times cheaper than funneling people experiencing homelessness through jails and through homeless service and organizations, three times cheaper. But yet we're not doing it. So why? And how can we use our resources and use what power we have to pressure the people in power in our communities to start investing in actual housing? We know housing first works. Like this isn't, we have decades of research now that you put people in housing and then then you can start addressing, you know, whatever else is happening in their lives, but we need to get people in housing and not into shelters. Shelters are not housing. Um, and then I think I wish know, I could I, scream like very loudly <laughs> at all of that. <laughs> and I'll just briefly say, going back to again, I you know I I say we need to think about going back to my earlier point just a minute ago of how can we build a queer and trans support network. So if we want to talk about a specific kind of LGBTQ solution, you know how can we build spaces in our communities to support LGBTQ youth where LGBTQ youth can meet other LGBTQ youth, but also LGBTQ adult mentors? How can we start building spaces and institutions that actually love, care for, and foster um, the greatness of LGBTQ youth because it just doesn't exist right now? And I, I mean, and this is probably, you know, like, most LGBTQ spaces are like gay bars, right? You have to be 21 and over to access them. Um, so it's like, how can we start building other different types of spaces for actual LGBTQ youth to find each other? I, I, I have to jump in. I have to say a, a tremendous thank you for all that you've shared. As Rebecca said, you know, we working in this space every day are like, applauding you like simply put in poverty and invest in housing right like it's not hyperbolic for us to make those statements it really is not a stretch of our imagination but really it's about how do we end poverty and invest in housing because what we talk about a lot is like the pipeline into homelessness once you fall into our system all of the a variety of systems have failed right um, and so to really address and end homelessness, we have to go upstream, which is, as you mentioned, we have to solve for, we have to end poverty and we have to invest in housing. I, I just wanted to jump in really quickly and, and, and say kudos and thank you for making that, making that comment. Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, I think we've we've done a tremendous job of I'm looking at our questions. Uh, Rebecca, I think maybe do we want to just center some of the stories around lived experience as we head on out into the into the rest of the time? Dr. Robinson, does that feel good to you as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. However you want to yeah. Yeah, anything you would want to share, any stories that you weren't able to share now about the youth that you interviewed for your book um, that may have left a significant impact on you and your work that you would like to leave us all with today. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's so many amazing youth and human beings in my uh, book who are fabulous, wonderful people, and many of their stories sit with me a lot. Um, I mean, Zoe, who I opened the book with, 
I adore. I met her the first day I was at the LGBTQ shelter. She's a trans woman of color. We have the same birthday. Uh, and, you know, she, her story, you know, I open with it because I think her story really com- kind of gets at the complexities, right? And so she talks about kind of the violence that she experiences in her home. She then talks about all of the bullying that she experienced at school from being called many um, queer slurs, how she turned to drugs to cope with the bullying, um, and then how she gets pushed out of both the schools and her family at 13 years old. You know, she was 13 when she started living on the streets. And then she talks about, you know, once on the street, she got arrested, she said at least 15 times, often for public intoxication or soliciting prostitution and how that just kind of further exacerbated her life. You know, in the, I think I talked about it in the chapter on criminalization. I mean, it, it haunted me, you know, I was at the shelter during Christmas of 20, uh, 2015. And, you know, all she kept saying to me, she's like, all I want for Christmas is for my criminal record to be expunged, for my criminal record to be removed. Like, that's all I want for Christmas. And that, again, should be harrowing to us. Like, you know, that's not what most youth are imagining when they're thinking about Christmas presents and what they want for Christmas. But she knew that that criminal record was such a barrier to her getting a job. She knew that criminal record was just a barrier to so much of her life and how she was going to experience perhaps the rest of her life. And that getting that removed was just so important to her. And so, you know, I think, you know, her story really just kind of sat with me as this kind of moment of kind of the complexities of these institutions that she navigated, how there was no institutions that really loved and cared and provided her safety and support. And that again, you know, she was one of the ones that she was, the, the, the first time she ever met another trans woman of color was in jail. So in Bear County, you know, where San Antonio is, um, they have a specific LGBTQ floor in their jail, which should also haunt us, that they have to have a whole floor to house the LGBTQ people that they're locking up. So we can think about how that um, talks about the criminalization of LGBTQ people. Um, but, you know, that was also the first time she ever met other trans people. And so, you know, I still think that's a, a haunting and harrowing way to think about the world that we have built and the world that we have lived in. Um, and that, unfortunately, I would also say, you know, I, I think life might be getting worse now than when I wrote the book. I mean, we're in a, a very, I would say, anti-LGBTQ, but very specifically anti-trans moment right now. We've never seen this many anti-trans legislations ever in US history than have happened in the past two years. And so I fear, um, you know, what's currently occurring for LGBT experience and homelessness. But at the same time, to end on a bit hopefully more hopeful note, uh, you know, I believe LGBTQ people, ex- including LGBTQ youth, are deeply um, creative, joyful, and resistant, and that they're pushing back every day against uh, these systems of oppression, that they're pushing back every day against heteronormativity, cisnormativity, white supremacy, and these other systems that are oppressing them. And that a main solution for all of us, if we want to work with and help LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness, is that we need to just listen to them, 
to what they tell us what they need um, and see how they're resisting and see what they're resisting and then ask how can we help and advocate for them to resist those systems as well. Absolutely appreciate all of your words. Um, a couple of questions I want to be sure that I, I get to in the, the Q&A. Um, the, the, someone asked a question about how do we make shelters or housing uh, more trans LGBTQIA friendly when and where housing is limited. I think Dr. Robinson said it well, listening to our youth, um, listening to them and really building uh, what it is that they say that they need. Again, I go back to the work happening at Housing Forward and across our All Neighbors Coalition to really center individuals with lived experience, center our youth that are experiencing homelessness or have previously experienced homelessness to build the system and maintain a system that they need, that they require, and really hearing from them directly. Um, I see another question around like, they mostly we're talking about men or trans or gender fluid folks, um, but we don't talk a lot about cis uh, gender women, perhaps in the numbers of youth experiencing homelessness. I would just remind the overrepresentation of um, of identities, uh, even in the adult population of individuals experiencing homelessness. I can only imagine we aren't seeing um, we're not seeing the, I guess, cisgender uh, female overrepresented or represented largely in the unhoused youth population, Dr. Robinson. But I'm not sure you any context or information you want to provide there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know the gender numbers off the top of my head. And again, might go back to how we measure homelessness. But there's a great book called, I think, Men on the Streets, Women and Their Places. And that. Um, plenty of cis women are also experiencing homelessness, especially cis women with children. Um, but they're often more put in private spaces, right? And so we visibly often see homelessness among perhaps cis men and LGBTQ people because they're more perhaps visibly in the public sphere where cis women, one, because they often experience a lot of sexual victimization and sexual violence on the public sphere. So they try to get out of it as quickly as possible. But two, there's often a lot more resources, especially if you're a cis woman with kids to access shelters and housing. And so they are experiencing housing instability, but it becomes more kind of privately seen or more back in the private sphere. And so we often then don't think about it or see it as much. Great. Thank you. Thank you for providing context. And then I just want to acknowledge one of the Q&A uh, chats from someone who's sharing their own experience of living in a shelter and um, some of the safety, uh, the concerns around safety, along with homophobia and racism. So I just want to acknowledge your experience and thank you uh, for being brave and for sharing. I, I really sincerely appreciate that. This has been a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful conversation. I cannot thank you both enough. I've learned so much. I've jotted down a page worth of notes and information. Thank you, Rebecca, for being a most amazing co-host. I saw your dog tiptoe in there during the strike. He broke through a locked door. <laughs> So thank you, puppy, for joining us today. Dr. Robinson, I cannot say enough about your amazing scholarship, information, research. I heard you mention earlier writing another paper now or that's waiting to be published, I guess. So thank you for all that you're continuing to share and highlight and illuminate for us. Um, that truly is making a difference in the work that we're able to do. 
Everyone, everyone, our next hard conversation is in November. Stay tuned for details to come. Visit our website, find out how you can join one of our sponsors already that's been doing amazing work to support our 2023 hard conversation series. I want to say a huge thank you for everyone and, and for joining us today. I saw many of my friends and board members, Housing Forward and All Neighbors Coalition board members for joining us. Thank you. We are all neighbors, no matter our address, and we invite you to look for ways to volunteer, advocate, and give toward this work in your community today. Thank you everyone for joining us. I appreciate you. Be safe and be well. Have a good day. Thank, Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.